don't stay in that rescuer role thinking that you're the complete hero. Turn more into a coach. Do stuff that's going to support your teams, but giving them the onus that they've got to take action. Welcome to the Wellbeing Champions podcast brought to you by Loonbase. My name is Aaron. And my name is Tom. This is the Wellbeing Champions podcast, where we bring you pearls of wisdom from the best and brightest in the wellbeing world. We aim to share knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to truly work and live well. On today's episode, we welcome an expert in resilience, Dr. Rachel Morris. Rachel is a GP turned executive and team coach with a focus on resilience, productivity, and well-being. Amongst the many strings to her bow, she is the host of the amazing You Are Not A Frog podcast. Rachel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So we like to start the show with a few warm-up questions. And I'll fire first. Have you got a favourite day of the week and why? Friday, definitely. <laughs> oh, just because every, everyone's in a bit, little bit more relaxed mode, aren't they? It's actually my, I actually t- try and keep Friday morning as a day off. So I do a, a circuit training class with my friends and then we go for a coffee and it's just really lovely to hang out. So it's genuinely my favourite day of the week. And then in the evening, you know, it, you've got the weekend so you can stuff a bit later and, and chill. So yeah, definitely Friday, Good. although in lockdown, <laughs> you know, yeah. Friday's pretty much... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> and do you prefer instant messaging or phone call? Oh, that's I, I was thinking about that. I actually prefer instant messaging because you, you can get it done and you can get it over. But I do like talking on the phone. That's something I've been t- telling people to do a lot more of at the moment. You know, we're all on, on virtual meetings, aren't we? It's actually much, much easier on your brain to talk on the phone. So I'm going to say I do like talking on the phone, but I haven't done it for a long time. Um, and have you got a top purchase that you've made in the last year that you'd say has really boosted your well-being? Yeah, inflatable hot tub. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Is it a particular brand or...? Oh, it, oh it's a lazy spa. There oh, we nice. Are. You know, it wasn't very expensive, but it's just been brilliant, you know, for getting out and, you know, I've, been, I've taken up jogging, which hasn't been brilliant for my back and I can just get in the hot tub and my kids will come in it as well and it's just been, you know, they'll, they'll chat to me in the hot tub because they can't take their phones in there. So <laughs> I've really enjoyed it, yeah. And what's your favourite book? It could be fiction or non-fiction. I've got so many books that I love. Fiction book, I think, long-standing, Captain Crowley's Mandolin. I just remember reading it and absolutely loving it. I love the sort of historical fiction. And then a non, not my favourite non-fiction book, uh, I guess the one I would just recommend to everybody, is called Essentialism. Uh, Strapline, doing fewer things but better. Love it. I'm a big fan of Essentialism. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, Greg McEwen is the author, for those people listening. But, you know, I recommend it. All my courses, everyone I'm coaching, they're going, I've got Essentialism, I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it's one of those books there's a few that are like once a year reads and that yeah. that's absolutely one of them because you forget don't you you forget the the principles and things about do it you know the strap line do fewer things but better just love that and i keep having to remind myself of that that's for sure oh well, yeah and i had seen yeah i had seen that you mentioned it before and it was actually before we were working together aaron got me it as a christmas present one time so i don't know if it was i don't know if it was a subtle hint so i've uh yeah i've got a copy that's is it here no it's at home but um but we did have it here um Good. So I'd love to know kind of how you morphed and merged into the role that you're in today and a little bit of your, you know, your origin story in a sense. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about morphing and merging because that's definitely what happened to me. Now, I didn't set out to be an expert in resilience in the workplace, but I did um, 
after my GP training, there was a little bit extra time available for registrars to, um, to dig down more into a particular subject. I did medical education, so ended up in the education world, um, taught general practice at Cambridge University for many years, did a master's in education, and then set up and led their doctor as professional course at Cambridge uh, University Medical School. And that got me really interested in the professional behaviour of clever people, you know, in terms of team working, leadership, resilience. And basically we're not that good at it <laughs> or basically actually we've been trained in one thing and then we expect ourselves to just be brilliant at, at something else without without any training and I think people in a lot of, sort of knowledge-based professions find that so I decided that you know in order to pursue my interest I would train as an executive coach and then as a team coach because actually just a random conversation I had with one of the sort of coaching trainers I said you know does the NHS need coaching and they said to me what the NHS needs is team coaching so I thought right I'll go off and do some team coaching <laughs> so so I, I learned about team coaching I learned about executive coaching I had some coaching myself which I found really really life-changing and then I thought well what do I know about? What am I good at? What am I interested in? I thought, actually, I'm really quite interested in well-being and resilience. I've read, you know, I find myself reading lots and lots of what my husband calls self-help books. Mm -hmm. I hear called essentialism a self-help book. It's not. I just think it's a way to live your life. It's brilliant. Um, and then started going into companies, talking to people, doing training about well-being initially. And then I noticed that it was all very well talking about well-being, but actually, if you hadn't given people the time to actually put those things into practice, if they were overwhelmed with work, if they were stressed because they were having really bad interactions and conversations as a team, then actually well-being was just like putting a little sticky plaster on this sort of gaping wound. So I started looking at all the other things that, that teams needed to work better together as well and noticed that I was just using a particular uh load of, of coaching productivity tools that I was taught during my uh, coaching training and noticed that they actually went together quite well and sort of forms a complete resilience package. So I then started doing that that whole package of training in organisations, not just for team members, but also for managers as well, because I think managers really struggle when it comes to helping their teams with, with resilience. Um, yeah, and, and then done various other things like set up the You Are Not A Frog podcast, which I really love. Um, I do quite a lot of leadership development for GPs and things like that as well. Great. And, and kind of reflecting then on the past year, how has your role changed in terms of tackling the unique challenges that the pandemic's brought and, and remote working and, um, and job changes, etc.? Like, yeah, how, how have you found that your role's changed within organisations and supporting teams? It's been really interesting this last year because we got to sort of February last year, everything stopped. You know, I was booked to speak at all these conferences, do all these training courses, all these face-to-face -face stuff. They just stopped dead. Everything cancelled. I thought, mm, what do we do? But then, of course, what happened was everybody needed the online stuff and well-being has really gone to the forefront of, of people's, people's minds in organisations, which which is a good thing, but for a really sad reason. You know, finally, organisations are realising that the, the well-being and the levels of stress in their employees really, really affect how they're performing and affect their engagement and all those sorts of things. So, so in the last year, I've been doing several um, webinars for organisations around sort of mental health, about staying mentally fit, well-being, but also for managers about how to support their teams because what I noticed was I was coaching some managers you know when the COVID crisis first hit and they were just 
exhausted because they were running around like headless chickens checking up on everyone all the time well when I say running around sitting in front of their screen (laughs) on zoom calls checking up on everybody um feeling very responsible for their teams but had no control you know you felt very responsible for that poor person that that's isolated there and home trying to homeschool three three small children but the manager couldn't do anything about that so they're feeling powerless they're feeling exhausted they were feeling like they should be able to do something but not really able to do it and of course thinking that they should have all the answers when of course there were no answers and we there are still no answers for quite a lot of the um challenges that people are facing so initially people were very um exhausted running around like headless chickens trying to support their teams and not quite knowing what to do so I sort of just helping people take a step back and think about you know what what can you do what's out of your control and actually how can you get your teams to support each other as well and then of course we started seeing the whole virtual fatigue thing kicking in you know people just exhausted from spending eight nine ten hours a day on their screens and forgetting to have breaks (laughs) and forgetting to leave their desk and finding that work and home have just merged because you know outside the door behind me there is my home I'm here at work you know and that and people were finding it very difficult to put work-life boundaries in uh, plus the fact that everything that they did for their well-being or a lot of stuff you couldn't do anymore yeah in the beginning of the podcast I mentioned my my favorite day being my circuit tr- when I do my circuit training with my friends that's really important for me for my well-being for connection for everything that stops of course in lockdown so people haven't been able to do the same sorts of things they could to keep themselves well and then the thing I've been seeing recently is this huge amount of fatigue, not just virtual fatigue, because of course our brains work much harder when we're talking to people online, but it's energy depletion. <clears throat> and I think that's from disconnection and loneliness and not being able to just have those normal connections that you have at work. And so work has become quite a lot more of a chore because you're not getting the, the things that make, it, that make it worthwhile, which is the interpersonal connections. Yeah. And, and like, I think one of the key kind of strands to what you said there was about fatigue. And some of the work I've been reading recently is about c- compassion fatigue, and particularly not, not isolated to health and social care professionals, but are kind of across the board. And yeah, have you got any insights on compassion fatigue? And, and if somebody might identify with just feeling drained of being able to give compassion and, and empathy and understanding, how might one approach circumstances like that? So that's a really interesting question. And in fact, I just re-released last week uh, an episode of my podcast on compassion fatigue. Mm. So I can give you the link, Mm. um, which we recorded way before the COVID crisis. But I just thought it was so important. Um, Compassion fatigue is actually a misnomer. It's in fact empathetic burnout. Okay. Because we are so sort of identifying with the suffering of other people that we, we then end up constantly having this slight, you know, depletion of energy when we go through those empathy centers in our brain when we see what other people are going through I think there's different ways to deal with it one of them would be being more self-compassionate so not not beating yourself up about things um not blaming yourself for things that you have no control over that you that you that you can't do and and to try and it's not remaining detached. I don't mean sort of, you know, completely detach yourself from the situation, but you do need to stay in your own zone of power, actually. What, what am I in control of? What's my business? What, what's someone else's business? And what can, I, what can I do to help here? And what is, is out of my control? Because if we're focusing on stuff that's out of our control, that's a very, very stressful place to be in. And particularly if it's for somebody else and it's their stuff. You know, it, it, it's really tricky. So I think having really good boundaries 
doing what doing what you can, but also being self compassionate. So um, practicing that, you know, there's lots of mindfulness techniques in, in, in terms of self compassion. There's lots of nurturing stuff. There's the rain technique, which Tara Brack talks about, which is about recognizing um, the, the feelings that you're having, accepting them, then investigating them, and then just nurturing, nurturing yourself. And so if you start from that place of self-compassion, it's then easier to be empathetic and compassionate to other people, but without depleting yourself and without giving of yourself so much that you're then, you know, you're then giving out of an empty bucket. I think that's really important. And the other thing I think it's important that, that there is an element of recognising where moral injury fits into this as well. And we've been seeing a little bit of moral injury with healthcare workers. And moral injury occurs when you're having to do things as part of your job that go against your, your ethics and your values. And so obviously in healthcare, when the pandemic first hit, healthcare workers weren't able to look after patients in the way that they would like to, because you couldn't see people face to face as much as you, you know, so maybe things were missed, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that's probably happening with people in other organisations as well, because you can't serve your clients and your customers in exactly the same way as you would want to. So that if that's conflicting with your values quite a lot, then that, that's quite difficult to deal with. And I think it's useful just, just to recognise when that's occurring, when you're not giving the service that you want to be able to give through no fault of your own. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the thing that, that, that you know, the, the point that triggered me was, was about a concept that I really identify with of, of emotional transference where you know if if there's there's certain personalities or or situations in which you come out of feeling absolutely drained um and and for me I'm I try and stay as aware of that as possible and and it and it also highlights to me that this concept of emotional transference is, is to kind of focus on the positives. So um, football for us, um, it, we've just, you know, as we're recording this, we're coming out of lockdown three um, and football for us started last night. And the, like the energy and this kind of, this passing of positive energy between all these people that haven't seen each other in four months um, was remarkable to see compared to then some of the other circumstances where you might find yourself in where it's all doom and gloom and you leave these situations feeling, you know, feeling downtrodden and your energy levels are low. A lot of that fits in with, you know, with what I experience on a day-to-day -day basis is that you know you, you can surround yourself with with positive you know happy people and certain scenarios that really kind of boost your energy to, to kind of um pick up from times that you might be feeling you know low and deplete yeah and i think what you said about gratitude is is hugely important and you know one of the things we just suggest to people as they keep a gratitude journal you know write down every day three things that you're grateful for because that will start to rewire your brain and you'll start to look around during the day and think oh what can I write in my gratitude journal tonight you know what, what am I gonna what am I gonna be talking about and I think just the power of positivity it's not artificial positivity you know it's not saying everything's brilliant when it's not but but what you focus on you focus on <laughs> what you notice, you know, if you buy a yellow car, you'll suddenly start driving around thinking, gosh, gosh, there's loads of yellow cars around. I never knew. <laughs> one of our, one of our first podcast episodes was with Claire Potter, who is a positive parenting consultant. And she talks about at the dinner table, but kind of 
preaching, re- you know, reflection on the day and what am I grateful for from the day? And so we've, we've instilled it in our house and I know Aaron's done the same, but our, our three-year-old daughter now says, like, you know, says, Daddy, what's your good thing of the day? And it sometimes merges into what's your favorite color? But, um, but anyway, we still, we still have a focus on like, what's your, what's your one best thing of the day? And uh, yeah, and she's really taken hold of that and, um, and comes out with very bizarre abstract things, but, um, but, but loves it and, you know, and kind of, um, a, yeah, a real highlight of the, of the evening for, for us. Fantastic. Oh, no, that's good. Install the, that um, habit while they're little. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, in terms of remote working and obviously the challenges that that brings, do you have any insight from your coaching and your experience on ways we can maybe avoid those huge Zoom meetings and Zoom fatigue and also people feeling they can't get their point across in those meetings and, and some of the, the trouble that brings? Remote meetings are tricky. Um, the first thing I think I'd say to people is, does it have to be a meeting? Like, do you actually have to have this meeting? Because um, a lot of inf- you know a lot of meetings are just to give people information. And I've heard of some really great ways that people have been giving people information over you know during COVID. Like one um, any department, they've been sending out a podcast every week with the information on it that their, their staff can just listen to. How good is that? Um, so, you know, could it be in a newsletter or an email or if it's just giving information or, or a podcast or a little video from someone? Brilliant. That, that's a good way of getting information over. And then you've got to think, what, what's the meeting for? What's it about? Are there decisions that need to be made? And if there are, how many people need to be in that meeting? Because I don't know if you guys have noticed, I've noticed that probably when you've got more than four or five people on Zoom, it's very then very difficult to have a proper discussion about anything. So... I would always say if you've got more than three or four people, then use breakout rooms. Get people into smaller groups to actually have proper discussions because it's very difficult. And there'll always be someone who just turns their their camera off and just gets on with their emails and they're not really taking part at all. So... Use small groups. You've got to have a. Re- you've got to chair it really tightly and really well, and actually go round and, and ask people. That's one thing we have to do differently in our training. We have to be really obvious. Like, okay, what do you think? What do you think? And you know, you're going round and you're putting people in breakout rooms. You're nominating spokesperson. You're you're using um, collaboration tools, like even just Google Sheets, so people can get their things down, so you can you can look at it. So, I think just being really aware of of that is really important and if you do have quieter people actually ask them directly go to them say you know what's going on what do you think um so i think you know there are there are ways and means i mean in order to avoid the virtual fatigue one thing i'd say is get, turn yourself view off if you can so on zoom you there's a little button where you can turn off your self view which means you can't see yourself on the screen but other people can still see you so it does come with a slight health warning that your camera is still on. <laughs> just in case you take your laptop somewhere, you shouldn't, you know, just, but that's really helpful because one of the things about virtual fatigue is we feel like we're performing the whole time because we can see ourselves, you know, it's like, oh, what's my hair look like? Or oh, am I all right from that angle? Blah, blah. So you're, you're constantly sort of checking yourself out, which is not what you normally do when you're talking to people, let's face it. It's hard. No, absolutely. And it's also, I would say, it's also really hard to read people's body language as well and interpret what people mean. So just if someone's looking a little bit bored and distracted, well, they might be looking at you, but on a different screen, you know, it's very difficult. And I think you might actually have to go and say, are you okay? Or what's your input here? Rather than just assume someone's zoned out or anything like that. It's, it's really difficult, to, which is, again, why we get so much fatigue in our brains uh, when, we're, when we're doing things virtually. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think I think there's a clear role in the future for people who are like professional meeting hosts or professional chairs. That their sole role is to is to be employed as a chair of the meeting because it's such a skill to be able to get, you know, particularly if if it is you know if you do need twenty people and there is twenty decision makers that need to be together. I think there's a real skill to be able to host that and bring people's opinions on board. And there's definitely meetings I've encountered where um, it would have been uh, very positive having somebody whose role it was to kind of to sit there and chair it professionally. Yeah. Oh, there we go. New business idea, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can you can train them. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> um, over the turmoil in the past year, in terms of in terms of the way you know huge team dynamics have changed and the way in which our normal relationships at work have changed, it's generated a, you know it's generated a lot of conflict at times and, and an inability to kind of have that conflict and discussion in person. So yeah, I'd love some of your insights on how we can manage conflict um, within, you know, within teams and within team members going forward. It's interesting you say that. I was reflecting with a colleague the other night that people are much ruder on on Zoom or in virtual meetings than they would be and they would be face to face. You know, I mean they're even ruder on emails, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting and it's difficult because what what has been removed is these water cooler conversations it's they're bumping into someone in the corridor or by the coffee machine and just having a chat about kids dogs whatever and then saying oh I've just had this difficult client oh and then and then someone coming up with a a, a a solution to a problem that you've got so we're really missing out on that and, and not only that the other thing we're missing out on is having that meeting with slightly tense difficult conversation walking out of that meeting room and going oh Jeff sorry about that are we are we are we all right you know and going yeah no that that's fine don't worry I got a bit hot in the collar there but it's fine you know you just sort it out whereas we don't you don't have that so it is tricky and um, and yes, conflict has, I think in organisations, people are getting tetchy. And also, you know, people have been uber versions of themselves. I've heard, I've heard about, you know, in, in lockdown. The, the problem is with conflict, I think, is that actually often it just stays hidden and it doesn't come out in the open. And I've, I've definitely seen this in the NHS, in GP surgeries, in other organisations I've worked with, in that people are just so nice. And so they'll agree or fail to disagree uh, in the meeting because it's a bit awkward to raise it. Um, and then they just won't commit to what's been decided because they haven't really been able to say what they really think, which is actually, I think this is a dreadful idea. So they're just like quietly hope it's going to go away and no one's going to, no one's going to think about it. So I think that <laughs> you need, again, it's like you said, that, that professional team meeting chairer to really mind for conflict and you know any good meeting chair can do this and Patrick Lencioni talks about this in his five dysfunctions of a team um, one of the dysfunctions of a team is an absence of conflict and that causes artificial harmony in the team where everyone on the surface is oh yeah yeah we're all fine but actually people aren't saying what they think and you're not having the opportunities to informally say what you think now because we're all stuck at home or you're social distancing in offices and and you're having these either virtual or hybrid meetings and, it, and it's very very difficult so I think there's a few things leaders need to do well firstly is is listen to the teams actually talk to people and just understand what their concerns are and, and ask and ask how how things are secondly in 
in meetings, mine for conflict. That's not, you know, try and stir up a hornet's nest. It's, you know, whenever you propose an idea, say to some, say to them, go around the group and say, right, I'd like you to tell me three reasons why this won't work. <laughs> Everyone, tell me what, what could be wrong with this. So you, you give permission, you give people permission to disagree and permission to give their, their opinions and their ideas. Really, really important. So um, mining for conflict. And then you've got the whole building trust thing as well, because actually you can conflict and disagree with people who you trust. Because if I disagree, you know, for example, you know, if we have a good level of trust between us, we can have a really good discussion about something being completely different sides, and, and that's fine. The relationship won't suffer. I, you know, I know that you're not going to go and, I don't know, badmouth me to everybody you met just because we didn't agree on something. But that's not always true in teams. Often, you know that if you're going to disagree with that person, even if you've made a really good point, they're going to really hate it because, because the trust isn't there. And unfortunately, there is no shortcut to building trust and there's that saying that trust um arrives on foot and it leaves on horseback so you may have taken a while to get to know some build, build trust but you do one thing that undermines them or one thing that you know shows that you're not you haven't got their back and boom, the, the trust is completely gone how do you build trust well you get to know people how do you get to know people informal connections and conversations oh dear we're back to this problem that we've all got now and we're not having these informal connections and conversations which is why I think in teams it's so important that we try and create opportunities for informal connections now you know the problem is we've all gone to zoom drinks and zoom coffee mornings were just excruciatingly awful I don't know about you. <laughs> yep. and you sit there and no one's saying anything and then two people will talk and then everyone else will sort of grunt and then people will leave just as quickly as possible and i don't know about you that has been my experience and you think why am i here that was a waste of time could have got something else done and it's all gone to pot so i think we need to rethink the way we do the the social interactions on Zoom. And what I would suggest is divide, you know, almost having a, a random coffee morning, making it compulsory as much as possible, randomly allocating people into smaller rooms. So two, three people, maximum four, and giving them a task to do. So like giving them a conversation starter. It could be, you know, tell us what the biggest challenge has been for you at home this year or what have you done on your house or something like that if you want small talk but also if you give them a work challenge that then becomes helpful to discuss well they're more likely to do it again because they can see it's useful so just things like what you know what's the biggest blocker for you in one of your projects at the moment let's talk about it you know or what you know what are you most proud of your achievements at work or you know what would you really like to see happen next year in your role something like that and just get people to to say to start talking if you give them a topic then they'll come up with things and then you'll start to get the the random oh you know what you should talk to Burton accounts about that he's done that before and you start to get those those random informal conversations that you would have got randomly in in the coffee room but you're gonna have to be creative about it and don't just stick loads of people on a call and expect them to get on with it and I love the, yeah, this concept of use me as a sounding board. Tell me your biggest problem right now, and and uh, and yeah, I might have zero insight. And but but even you know even the process. Of, what's the, what's it called? Is it rubber ducking when people kind of speak to the duck in the bath just to sound out the problems and come up with creative solutions? Then you know we could do that. You could do that with a with a random Zoom room and see see what kind of spins yeah, out. Yeah, I've it. never heard that phrase rubber ducking. That's really interesting. There's a book by Nancy Klein called Time to Think, which I talk about a lot, and she talks about. Um, 
creating thinking partnerships. Mm -hmm. the, the basic concept of the book is the quality of my listening determines the quality of your thinking. Now, most of us need to talk to know what we're thinking, particularly if we're extra, um, extroverts. Like Peter Ustinov said, I like being interviewed. It helps me know what I think. <laughs> so Nancy Klein in this book suggests, well, there's two things she suggests. Firstly, is running meetings like thinking partnerships. So you literally go around the meeting and you give every person a chance to talk and you let them talk till they're finished. And, you know, you think, oh, crumbs, that would never work because, like, Bruce over there, he'll talk for half an hour. Actually, off people don't. They'll talk for a bit and they'll burn themselves out and they'll think, but as long as you listen to them and they feel properly heard, that will save a lot of time because they won't be butting in trying to give their ideas all with it over everybody else. So she suggests running these sort of thinking meetings. She also suggests thinking partnerships where you literally get together with one other person and 25 minutes, I talk. Then 25 minutes, you talk. <laughs> That's it. Right. You know, you don't have to be a coach. You don't have to be massively insightful, but you just listen. And that is inc that's incredibly helpful. Really works. So if anyone wants something quick to do that will build up trust, will build relationships, will probably help them solve problems, then, you know, putting people into pairs and creating thinking partnerships within their team would, would be good. Oh, I love that. I'm sure Aaron's sick to death of, sick to death of me speaking already and, and never stopped blabbing. So I'll, I'll have to go and find somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could listen to him. <laughs> oh, there's a thought. <laughs> and um, yeah, another kind of point that I wanted to raise was how we're big tech companies who pour, you know, millions and millions into research and, and millions into kind of the dynamics in between the teams and, and how to kind of encourage particularly creative working. So, you know, thinking about Google and Amazon and others, they seem to be moving to this kind of blended approach of we want you in the office because we know that work in the office is much better for creative collaboration um, but it doesn't have to be full-time it doesn't have to be a full five days a week it could be you know three days a week and you pick and choose them and it's a more flexible approach and and I guess you know they're the trendsetters I suppose and I guess other people are going to follow that pathway um, which is I suppose is slightly different for process-driven working patterns where maybe it's not as essential that you do need you know groups of people collaborating together have you got any insights into um, how we kind of encourage creative approaches in this what appears to be this new blended working of you know pick your days and some days in the office and some day at home yeah I think you need to be very intentional about how you do it so I think that I think the blended approach is really brilliant because a lot of when when I was doing the resilience training in organizations before lockdown before COVID the main the main problem was I'm just in meetings back to back to back to back I don't get any work done I'm interrupted constantly and so people are getting lots more work done by being at home, but they're not getting the collaboration and the creativity. So I think both hand, totally brilliant. But you need to be, as a, as a leader, you need to be very clear with your teams about what, what goes where and what your guidelines are. So, you know, if you're doing this, you can work from home. Whereas if we're doing this, the team needs to be, team needs together. And if you give people the parameters and the, and the boundaries, then then they're much more secure. It's like giving toddler rules and guidelines. You know, people people need to know where they stand and, and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I'm trying to encourage organisations at the moment to almost get this sort of hybrid working charter about, you know, when do we need the team together? When can the team be at home? What sorts of meetings need to be virtual meetings? What, what sorts of meetings need to be in-person brainstorming meetings? What sorts of meetings don't need to be meetings at all? So actually, how are we going to how are we going to work together? But I also think as well as being intentional about the formal meetings and the formal work, um, companies really need to be intentional about the in, this informal stuff that we've been talking about. How are you going to do that? Is it going to be face-to-face? -face? In which case, 
When are you going to do that? How are you going to do that with social distancing? Is it going to be the whole of the office or just your team? Is Are you all going to be there on the same day? What are the, What is the guidance and the guidelines? And of course, how are you going to be flexible? Because you are going to have to be flexible because we're going to have people that are having to isolate. Um, we've got kids get sent home from school, so they have to stay home, you know, so... Um, there's going to have to be a lot of flexibility. So I think it's going to be a lot of listening. But what I would suggest to leaders and managers is, is involve your team in making these decisions and get them to run it and get them to, you know, to, to determine what they want and to set the schedule. Yeah, get them to solve this problem. Don't do it yourself. Yeah, I love. I just yeah, I love what you're about. You're, yeah, uh, I've spent like two and a half hours like researching yesterday, and the more I research, the more I was like, oh, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Oh crap, we need to do something about that. <laughs> but um, it's until Lumos, I've never really delved into kind of what like what's involved in professional coaching and like what are the points they consider. And I know I, I mentioned that the one of the GP partners at my practice, she um she did your Lead Manage Thrive course and loved it. Um, but that was a few years ago. That was in person. So yeah, for me, it's connecting the dots. I'm a, I'm a slow learner, slow burn. <laughs> No. <laughs> um, was there anything else you wanted to mention, Rachel, before you wrap it up? I think I think the main thing I would say for, for people and organisations who are thinking how to do this whole wellbeing stuff, and one of the things I've been banging on a lot with, um, with particularly managers and leaders, is try not to take all the responsibility on yourself. And I think, you know, I, one of the shapes I use a lot is the drama triangle. And that um, talks about, uh, developed by Stephen Cartman, a psychologist in the 1960s, it talks about these roles that people can get into, either a rescuer or a persecutor or a victim. And what happens is we tend to go round and round these different roles in these sort of dysfunctional type relationships. And you can see this everywhere in, in fairy tales or in soap operas. And you can see them at, in family situations, but you can see them at work as well, where maybe the team member's become the victims, feel, oh, I'm overloaded, I can't do this. The manager feels like the rescuer, like I've got to be a hero, do everything for my poor old team. That's what being a good manager is. And then, of course, you've got the persecutor, either other, other team members or the organisation itself. And the manager just ends up running ragged, trying to rescue, trying to have conversations with the persecutor or trying to sort the victim out. And that's a very disempowered place to be is frankly it's exhausting and and one of the things I'd say to managers is get out of that rescuer role look at your your teams not as victims but as activators people that actually have resources to to look after themselves and do what they need they might need a bit of support look at the persecutor not as a persecutor but as a catalyst so people giving you challenges you know that you've got to overcome which is which is good which is what you need to make a business run but yourself, don't stay in that rescuer role thinking that you're the complete hero. Turn more into a coach. Do stuff that's going to support your teams, but giving them the onus that they've got to take action. Let them solve their own problems. Ask questions of them that's going to help them to come to their own conclusion rather than doing it all for them. So I think for managers, just using some tools and resources to take much more of a, a coaching approach and a supportive approach rather than a I'm doing everything for you approach is, is, is the way you're going to have to handle this. And this 100% applies to coming back to work and the new ways of working in this hybrid way of working because you cannot fix it for the whole of your team. They've got their own challenges and you have no control of what happens to them at home or how they spend their time at home. So if you try, <laughs> that's just a high rate to nothing. So get the, get the help and the resources you need to be much more of a, a coach and take a coaching approach rather than as this rescuing approach for people. 
Oh, I love that. And I think it moves on to kind of what, what does your horizon look like? What's on the cards for you coming up in terms of the work you do? And, and I really appreciate some of the points you've raised so far because I think you're really well taken by the audience. Thank you. Well, we're really looking at this hybrid working space, how we can get teams to work well in, in a hybrid way in an organisation. So how can we help teams look at how they're going to manage their meetings, look at what the rules are going to be, look at the guidelines, be more empowered. So that's a lot of the training work that we're doing. We're continuing to do the Shapes Toolkit. We're delivering that online for people, um, for organisations. We've also got a, uh, a membership for leaders, both in healthcare, but also high-stress organisations outside of healthcare, to help them use some of these coaching, resilience and productivity tools to support their teams so that they're acting much more of, more of a coach. And so every month we're delivering webinars, giving people a bite-sized team connection building activity to do with their teams within a meeting. So there's a video and an activity, which we, hope, we were hoping is really going to build up the connection between the teams um, and build up trust there. And then there's coaching demos and, and loads of resources and communities and stuff like that. So that is launching uh, at the end of April. So if anyone's interested in that, that would be great. Just just check out the link in the show notes if, we, if that's okay. That's great. And yeah, of course, we will link to that in the show notes. And is, is there anywhere else that people can reach out to you or find out more about your work and your podcast? Yeah, so check out the podcast. It's called You Are Not a Frog. Uh, you can get it on all good podcasting platforms. Um, uh, the website is youarenotafrog.co.uk. You can, if you want to know about the training and other stuff we run, check out shapestoolkit.com. Or if you look at the Resilient Team Academy um, to find out about membership for leaders and managers. So we, we've got loads of resources, particularly on the You Are Not a Frog. We've interviewed lots and lots of different people about all of this sort of stuff. So you hopefully uh, will find something there about supporting your team or you know just general well-being resilience oh great yes i will link to uh to those to make it easy for people to give it a listen yes and i'm a, a new listener to the podcast too and i'm yeah a big fan i think it's uh it's really great oh thank you so much oh that was amazing thank you so much for your time rachel um, some yeah some great take-home points for the listeners. thank you it's been good to be with you well, thank you so much bye this podcast is brought to you by loonbase loonbase is an all-in-one well-being platform for your workplace Listeners of this podcast can get an exclusive deal. Just simply go to loonbase.com forward slash champions. That's loonbase.com forward slash champions to find out more.